You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. The circumstances surrounding the murder of Madame de Plantier are quite mysterious as to why she should decide to spend Christmas alone in West Cork when she had a child and a husband in France. The killing has shocked the village of Skull in West Cork and where many foreigners keep holiday homes. Madame du Plantier had kept herself secluded from the local population on her visits and they didn't know a lot about her. Hey lovely listeners and welcome back to Crime Analyst. This week I'm joined by former New York City prosecutor and retired FBI profiler Jim Clementi. As I continue to forensically deconstruct Sophie Toscan de Plantier's brutal murder, I wanted to pull mine and Jim's 60-year collective knowledge and experience of analysing and profiling serious crime. I know that you agree with me, Sophie deserves the best. Particularly after all this time, I can't even imagine how it must feel for her family and friends. And so in this episode, Jim and I start with the victimology. We discuss whether Sophie was targeted and or knew the killer, as well as what we believe happened the night that Sophie was killed. Step by step, we'll walk you through our individual analysis of the crime scene. Just a heads up, Jim and I haven't discussed Sophie's case before. What you hear in this episode and those following... Well, it's our organic and dynamic analysis of what we understand and believe happened. And again, like with every episode, listener discretion is advised. Hi, Jim, and welcome to Crime Analyst. I'm really excited, really excited to have you on here. And I'd love you just to, I know exactly who you are and all Real Crime Profile listeners know who you are and you have a huge reputation, but I would love you to Introduce yourself to my listeners. Well, my name is Jim Clementi. I'm a retired FBI profiler. Uh, before that, I was a prosecutor in New York. On you know occasion, I've done podcasts with you uh, over the last five years, Just <laughs> like a every few. week. Yeah, but we, you know, we shared uh, time at the BAU when I was in the behavioral analysis unit. You came and trained with us, and um, and I was over in New Scotland Yard with you and your boss uh, for a while uh, when they were, well, a couple of times once when, uh, when we were looking at some cases and another time when I helped to train up the um, SACA behavioral analysis unit, serious and organized crime unit uh, agency, sorry, serious and organized crime agency, right? That's it. So many acronyms all across the world. uh, It's difficult to keep track of them. Yes. So anyway, I I worked and I specialized in child abduction homicides and serial child abductions, but I also did serial killer cases, serial rape cases, and serial uh, any cases. But, um, you know, I also focused on, uh, on some extreme homicide cases as well and adult abduction cases. So a whole bunch of different things that I did in my 12 years in the BAU and my 10 years before that was spent 
um, started out in violent crimes, did did uh, some undercover work, and then government corruption cases, and then went back to violent crimes before became an FBI profiler. And since retiring, I've and I'm sorry, while I was still an FBI agent, I was also an expert witness in the behavioral sciences. And then when I retired, I also did expert witness work as well as uh, consulting on some cases that, uh, you know, colleagues had called me about. So I've been keeping active over the time. Super busy. Are they retired from the FBI? You're just as busy, if not busier, I think. Well, these you days. know, I think you know exactly what it's like when you're, you know, running podcasts and running a business and and consulting on cases and you're doing a lot of legal, political lawmaking work, which is extremely time consuming. So I think you know exactly what it feels like. I, I do. There's certainly no yeah. retirement or or being slow, any slow downtime going on, that's for sure. And I always think it's interesting because people always think we met first of all in America. But as you said, my boss introduced us at New Scotland Yard. I was asked to come right. down into the office and Commander Andy Baker, who was head of homicide at the time, the first head of homicide at New Scotland Yard ever, said, I really want you to meet this incredible FBI profiler. I think you'd you'd have a lot in common. So I came down and we met yeah. and uh, it went from there. And I, I was kind of yeah. thinking, how long ago was that? I mean, was that? 18 years now, 17 years? Oh, it was at least, it, it was, wasn't it in the 2002 range? 2002, 2003? It must yeah. have been. Yeah, I think three, yeah. I was working for Andy setting up the Homicide Prevention Unit. So that would make oh. sense. A long time yeah, ago. And then, and then 2005 is when you came to the BAU, right? Yeah, I spent three months there and uh, really enjoyed my time and met a lot of people who I still talk to, still work with and doing incredible work. And I yeah. was trained there as well as delivered some training as well. So it was yeah. an incredible experience. Yeah, that's how I felt when I was in New Scotland Yard. It was great. And and Saka, um, you know, it was great. It was wonderful meeting colleagues across the pond and, and working with them on cases. And of course, Joe Sullivan did a lot of work with him, including going out and doing a bunch of interviews of offenders who were either just recently released or about to be released in a, in a crime prevention uh, mode. And that's something that we don't do here, which I wish we did. Yeah, well, what's interesting covering um, the case that I have been on Crime Analyst and deconstructing it, it's one from the 70s, was that I didn't know that actually two agents who knew knew very well came over from the FBI when they were setting up the units to firstly speak with the National Crime Faculty, which is the police college. And they apparently weren't that interested in swapping and sharing knowledge and it was John Douglas and Robert Ressler, and they were trying to talk to them about profiling. And yeah, I had used... exactly the same experience when I went to oh, the college. Really? Yeah, well, there was one guy, there was a psychologist there who thought he was a wise ass and started asking me stupid questions, trying to say that I didn't know what I was talking about. And I literally stopped the class and I said, okay, have at it. You want to be a complete asshole? I'll show you. 
how much I know and how little you know about what you're talking about. And I just read him for like 30 minutes and he shut up. He didn't say another word the rest of the class. But everybody in the class came up to me afterward and said, cheers, cheers. That was great. He's always doing stupid things like that. But yeah, I can't remember his name because he was a jerk. But anyway, that is exactly the same thing. They were not, some of them were definitely interested, but there was, this guy was supposedly, you know, the guy and he didn't, he didn't want to hear anything from the BAU. I think I might know who that is, but I would have loved okay. to have been a fly on the wall or sat in, <laughs> in that class in particular. And it's interesting, they got the same response. And what happened was one of the detectives on the Cliff case, PS as I call him, reached out to them and said, would you mind meeting me for a beer? I'd like to you know, chat with you about this case. So Robert Ressler and John Douglas met with him and they had a conversation. And I know exactly what they said about the type of killer which is very interesting. In the main, that conversation was accurate, but they requested the crime scene photos and all the case file, and the senior detective refused to show them the case file. So they gave the caveat, well, we are not going to consult any more in depth because obviously we're going on what you're, you're telling us and we can't opine too much further than what we have done. Right, of but, it, course. but it's interesting that the assistant chief constable didn't want the assistance of the FBI or New Scotland Yard. Both were called in to help and to give expert advice. Both were pushed back on by the same very senior detective. <laughs> so it was interesting seeing Robert Ressler and John Douglas's okay, name I pop just, up again. Yeah, I just have to say, as I recall, the campus for that, yeah, Bram Sill, yeah, this was the most disturbing thing in the world, though. They had a bunch of sort of A-frame, big brown buildings, as I recall. Right. They, they had these long roofs that came all the way down, but they had a pond and it was filled with geese. And they told me that every year they round up all the geese and they shoot them. Because they keep coming every year. I was like, what? They literally, wow. I don't, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I think there's another better way to do that. But that was one of the disturbing things I learned when I was there. Anyway. So we I, digress, but I very, let's very get to interesting. The case. Yeah, let's get yeah. to the case. I mean, this is quite a case, actually, Jim. And just to caveat it, it's not a case I knew about when I was at New Scotland Yards. We're talking about West Cork, which has been a very successful podcast, and it is centred on the murder of Sophie Toscan Duplantier, who was a French national who had a holiday house in Skull in West Cork. And 1996 was, well, December 23rd, 1996 was when her body was found. I was Hello. working at New Scotland Yard at the time, but I don't remember the case at all. I don't know whether you remember it, Jim, or whether it had any resonance to you that you were familiar with it certainly wasn't for me so i've been approaching it completely new fresh eyes as am i i have i have never uh i had never heard of this particular case uh, i don't believe i've ever discussed it with anybody and i don't know of anybody who who went to west cork in in the 1996 time frame, I have no idea. I it it's just before I became a profiler. Uh, Fitz had just become a profiler at this time, 
and I was there uh, in the beginning of 98. So I just, I don't know if I just missed it or if nobody was called into it. It didn't seem like it um, when you, when you see these documentaries and listen to the podcast, but it's an interesting case. Um, and of course, the victim and uh, I, you, can you just tell me how to pronounce her last name? Cause I don't know how. So Sophie Toscan Duplantier. But didn't she go by another name in in West Cork? She went by her, her maiden name or her... She did, by Dulino, but then they did discover that she was married and that was the name. So, yeah, she did choose to go by her maiden name in West Cork when she got right, the holiday I, home there. Right, So, which I, I thought was interesting. I think, I think that's the first interesting aspect of her victimology. So she's a French woman in her 30s beautiful, intelligent. She was sort of um, happy to be alone. She wanted a very rough, raw, natural environment. She relaxed in that. Uh, She apparently made her bed on a platform so she could look out the window and see the lighthouse and the storms and all that. Um, She frequently sat in the, at the table in the kitchen with another chair pulled up and her feet up and reading books. And I believe that was m- most likely something she did on, at the time or just before she was killed. So that, that was interesting. Another interesting thing is that she is married to a very famous director and producer in France and in Paris and and uh, she may or may not have been a trophy wife kind of situation. In other words, people have described her as somebody who was married to him, but kind of just showed up for all of his, his events and didn't really live that lifestyle or want to live that lifestyle. So a lot of people in the documentary and and some of the podcasts made light of the fact that or drew attention to the fact that she had gone to West Cork just a few days before Christmas. But we know that she had called her husband and they spoke and she had gotten tickets to go back. Uh, She was going to be there on Christmas. And so that was her intention. But there were some unusual things that that preceded this trip. She usually went alone to West Cork. This was her sort of getaway, right? Her quiet space. Her holiday um, home and her respite. Yeah. And, and just for my listeners, you all know that everything Jim is describing now, which is where we always start, is victimology. He's understanding everything about, as much as we can about Sophie and the decisions that were taken, but also some of the um, anomalies, which there are some in this case. And mm-hmm. I do just want to say, I'm really glad, Jim, that you pointed out that this was her boat hole, her respite, that she wanted to have somewhere quiet and wanted to be in nature. And there's nothing nefarious about that because there was a bit of a play around why would she possibly be there on her own just before Christmas? Right. But a woman can be on their own and not be up to nefarious bad things of course i mean and that's that's important that's what understand and that's what the intention was when she got this place to get away to i mean 
she literally wanted a place where it wasn't, you know, sort of easy living and, you know, the high life. She wanted to be able to go away and be sort of raw with nature. And, and that's what this place was. It was but she also, did have that lifestyle with her husband. And yes. you quite rightly said that he was very successful. She was a TV producer too, but they were in the limelight a lot. They were walking a lot of red carpets. And so when you do a lot of that stuff, if you're not, if you're an introvert, that can be quite a lot, can't it? And right. I got the sense that she was sort of bookish and introverted. And this was her bolt hole that she loved to be in nature. So I'm really glad that you said that. But carry yeah, on. I just thought I'd give a little okay. bit of context. Yes. And and I and I, I will say there's another odd part of that. And you just mentioned she is a producer, that she wanted to make a big film about bodily fluids which is kind of a weird topic to want to make a big film about but that's who she was so apparently there is some you know quirkiness to her or what she her creativity or whatever but it it's it's not like i mean that to me says a lot in that she is she's not necessarily going to go with whatever's popular or whatever. She wanted to do what she wanted to do. And that's, so she's her, her own person. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Said the chemist and physicist and you know, all the, the nerdy other things that you're into, Jim. But yes, yeah. I think that it does show that her her personality, her character, there was much depth to it. And she was to some mysterious because, you know, a lone woman being on her own around Christmas and she's chosen this beautiful big white house that's sparsely furnished. And as you said, the books are there and she likes to sit there. She li- liked the simplicity of it all. Right. That's what she was buying into. But interestingly, it was Daniel who bought the house for her. So you mentioned his name and that she went by her maiden name there, which is an interesting choice, mm. and that he bought the house for her there. Well, but she, I think, she used his name in Paris, though. That's right. But um, what I'm thinking is she didn't want to draw attention to her at that place. She didn't want to have that famous name where people could look her up and, and you know, fan attacker or whatever you know i think that's probably all it had to do with it she 
one person said she she typically came in off season. In other words, she wasn't doing the tourist thing. She was doing getting away from, you know, her life. I think that's really the whole reason for it. So her death, she was murdered on December 23rd, 1996. It's a full moon, a clear sky, cold night. Those are all interesting factors. You know, they are factors that we all want to look at, right? So uh, let's talk a little bit more about who, who she was. So because of the fact that there was a lot of press, and we won't go into the origin of this, but there was a lot of rumors going around. And uh, one particular person was reporting that, you know, she had a lot of men coming there. And, uh, you know, and she was having an affair with at least one of them, he claimed. And, you know, but then when you look into it, it's like her brother, you know, a work colleague, you know, family members, friends, you know, the fact that it's a woman. This this reporter is just automatically attributing, oh, she must have wild parties. She must have wild sex going on there and all that kind of stuff, which. There's absolutely no foundation for it, according to the police and according to the neighbors. She must um, be promiscuous, that whole narrative. Right. And of course, Jim, right. we've seen that framed before in Meredith Kirch's case, where an American citizen was framed to be Foxy Noxy and that whole narrative right. that came out that sowed the seed to people that she was something that she wasn't. And I felt very much that here, I was glad that local people and the police said, we found no evidence of this at all. Right. So, you know, she had been married before. She divorced, was a bit acrimonious, which is an important little caveat that we have. But she remarried and she remarried to a very famous guy and he seemed to be older. Those are all just factors that we are keeping in the back of our minds. So she kept to herself in Skull, West Cork. And and that's another thing. When we talk about the crime location, Skull, West Cork, is a tiny, tiny little town. And everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows everybody. It's that small. And so that's an important, a very important aspect to this case. So she liked to be alone. And, and for her, Ireland was... It's described as the perfect escape for her. And so she apparently wanted to be away for a few days. And there are people who described her as being sort of attracted to the morbid, to death, and to monsters, Um, you know, which is probably all part of her level of creativity. I didn't see that as anything that would increase her risk. you know, of being the victim of a crime like this. Um, but some of those things, Jim, thinking about Ireland and just where she was, like folklore and these kind of urban myths and legends, you know, Ireland does have this kind of mysterious uh, backdrop, particularly in certain country locations or countryside locations, I should say. So it's difficult to ascertain whether, you know, she was really into that stuff or just a bit intrigued. She loved Ireland and she always had a thing about Ireland and wanted to be by, you know, in a, in a house by the sea and where the sky and the earth meet, you know, the creativity side. So it's difficult to know how much of a, 
you know, nerdy geek she was into those things or whether it was just stuff that she was intrigued by, but she liked right. to lose herself anyway in, in nature. We certainly get that sense. Right. And the only reason why I even bring it up is that, that she apparently told friends or family members that something happened that kind of scared her at some point. And it was apparently linked to that kind of thing, myths or, you know, legends around that area. It was walking um, by the lake, wasn't it, that she sent something, right. I think it was the day before, and she felt dread, like this kind of right. dread that there's something out there. Right. And that's what I and, mean, like with the folklore, the, the woman mm-hmm. of the lake, you know, was the kind of the folklore there. Right. And what's interesting about that is that this is one of the rare times when she had asked a bunch of people, family members, uh, mainly, and friends to go with her to to West Cork. And no one could go because of their schedule and so forth. It's right before Christmas. And you know, I'm sure that's why, but that was, that was a, an anomaly. And I think we need to keep that, you know, sort of in the backs of our minds that there was some reason why that was the case. Um, yeah. So at some point she mentions to a friend of hers that, that there was a man in West Cork in Skull, who wanted to see her about a project, assuming project means a production, since she's a producer, uh, regarding poems. And she felt he was odd. And we won't go into who that was uh, at this point, because we don't deal with suspects until much later in the process. But that's just another little caveat. So she kind of got spooked the day before, a few days before she came to West Cork, she asked friends and family to come with her and everybody turned her down. So there was something in her, in her mind about that. Um, yeah, that's a good point because her mom did say that that was one of her big regrets, isn't it? That's the first time yeah. she'd asked and she just regretted not I think she was unwell at the time, which is why she didn't go with her. But yes, right. that's that's right. She was wanting someone to go with her, which was uncharacteristic. I'm just making a list. And there's one other point, just whilst you do that, that I wanted to circle back with. There, we know that the media did, and one person in particular in the media was driving this whole narrative around her being promiscuous, and there was a, a victim-blaming aspect to it. And I wrote the question, would you, would, would the same be done to a man if she were a man? Probably not. But we know that she did have one affair and that was with Bruno Carbonet. And that affair did happen. It was documented and he had been to Ireland with her. And so he stood out just because he did, there was a genuine affair there. She did break it off with him and it ended badly. And she decided she wanted to be with her husband. And and when I say it ended badly, it sounds like there was some type of stalking. He didn't deal with the rejection well. He sent her some things that scared her too, um, that made her feel very uncomfortable. And so there is a history there with him in particular. Right. Right. So that would also be something, a little red flag that we'll need to revisit later when we start looking at suspects. 
Yeah, and she did. I think her account was that he did push her against the wall at some point and he strangled her, which putting his hands to her neck. And that was something that immediately piqued my interest because that increases the risk sevenfold for serious harm and femicide. And of course, it's in no way a normal reaction, even when we go back to 1996, where we do hear references throughout the various productions about domestic violence, and it seems to be minimized. But here it sounds like he was quite serious in his behavior and she was quite, she was concerned about him. Right. And I think that, well, when I heard about the hands around the neck, of course, I, I hearkened back to what you've told us about the seven times greater risk. And obviously that is something that we have to look at. Uh, There's no question about it. And to have to have some other person kind of pry his fingers from around her neck. She was five foot one, petite, tiny little thing. And there you go. Somebody decides he wants to choke her out and somebody else has to come to her rescue. So that is not a, um, a, uh, uh, a non-event. All right. That's domestic violence right there. And, and perhaps even stalking. So, I think unless you do you have anything else you want to add in terms of victimology um I I would say that you know she had a relatively close family she had a son who was who was um was he 12 at the time um, Yeah Pierre Louis who she yeah. adored and he adored her Right and they had a great relationship uh she had a great relationship with her brother and her other relatives and her mother um you know, she just was a had a had a wonderful disposition and and you know was living a very low risk lifestyle. Um, I you know I get that there were a couple of little things that you know if you have an affair that could raise your risk a little bit. If you you know are are walking out alone at night and in dark areas that could be risky but when you're in the privacy and safety of your own home and even if it's a summer home or a, a vacation home or an escape home um and especially you know so in in skull west cork tiny little town that had not had a murder for almost 100 years that would be the definition of a low risk area the chances of someone being murdered there are almost zero generations grew up and died without having a single murder there this tells you something this is a major factor in this case this is not normal this is something that stands out you know uh, as unusual in a hundred years so we're not looking for the usual suspects. There are no usual suspects. And generally, it is not a location that has any violent crime. I'm sure there were people who got drunk and maybe some fist fights and things like that and burglaries. And I don't know if there are any robberies in this town at all. But a murder, a violent assault, and we'll talk about whether or not it was sexual in a bit, but a violent assault like this um, is incredibly rare. Just didn't happen in this town. So she was incredibly safe. She led 
a very low risk lifestyle. So the chances of her being killed by someone she didn't know at all, she had no contact with at all, I think are almost non-existent. I do not believe that this was a hit or a random uh, somebody, you know, some lunatic serial killer just happened upon her. I don't believe that at all. I believe that because of the low risk nature of her lifestyle and the crime, that is not a probability at all. Yes, I think they're very interesting points. The first murder there in living memory. So, and she obviously felt safe because we heard about her raising her bed, not having curtains on her windows so that she could look out to the lighthouse and, and to the water. There was a little play around that of, well, the French, you know, women are a bit promiscuous or not, you know, afraid of nudity, which I just think if you feel safe where you live and it's remote and you enjoy nature and beauty and you're creative and why not have no curtains? I mean, it doesn't make you promiscuous or that you're, you're right. showing your body off in any way. And I was wondering, you can maybe answer this. Is it because is Ireland a very, you know, religious country and therefore is there a lot of, you know, modesty that's superimposed on people and so that somebody from France who wasn't, you know, worried about those things, those strictures, they would stand out. Is that what was going on? I'm nodding so hard. I'm about to fall off the ball that <laughs> I'm sat on. But yes, I mean, very religious, very, uh, you know, insular in some ways. And although they were close and, and I've been to Ireland many times and worked there many times and you've got close knit communities, but there's certain subjects you don't talk about. Certain things are taboo. And, you know, certainly there was the, the, the frown. I felt it, the disapproval with no curtains and that therefore it, she's French and therefore it links to nudity, which to me, it just links to nature and feeling safe actually and not needing to have curtains there. But that judgment certainly seem to come through. And of course, people who haven't lived there since the, the you know, year dot are called blow-ins. So mm -hmm. they know the people who aren't of natural origin of, of living there. So it, it is a closed community. I mean, West Cork is absolutely beautiful. I will say that. It is a remote corner of the southwest of the country and it's absolutely stunning. And we get to see all of that on the Netflix show. There's also a Another documentary by Jim Sheridan and Donald McIntyre called Murder at the Cottage um, in Search of Justice for Sophie, which Jim Sheridan, I'm sure you've heard of and Emmy, yeah. many Emmy Awards, Oscar Awards, etc. Well, he actually decides to go front of camera and lead you through almost like a Columbo-esque kind of play around, you know, what happened to Sophie and I would I would love you to watch that and so that we can discuss it. But you get to see Ireland and West Cork and its beauty, just how you you can understand why she was drawn to it. And it was such a yin and yang from Paris to her want to be there and and to feel safe. Like you say, it's not an area of high crime. These yeah, she should feel safe murders. there. Right. Exactly. Yeah, none of them had ever worked a murder. How could they? There were no murders there. So that's a, that's just 
she was absolutely safe there. So this, this was not just a crime of happenstance. This was not just a somebody falling victim to somebody who, you know, happened upon her. She was not a victim of opportunity. So can we talk a little bit about the crime scene then? Absolutely. I, I really want to hear your thoughts around the crime scene, the, the fact that it's so isolated and remote, but just your thoughts around what you think happened and we can break it down by step by step. So go ahead, Jim. Well, between the um, documentary series on Netflix and the Audible original series, it appears to me that Sophie was ready for bed. She was in her white night clothes and it was late at night, I'm sure. And I believe she was called to the back door. And interestingly, at the back door is a hatchet, a small hatchet that's used to chop firewood. I believe her keys were in or hanging from the knob in the back door. I don't know if they were inserted because I couldn't really tell from the shot they had. They but looked like they were, they were to me, but but like you say, it's not it's not easy to say a hundred percent. Right, but the fact is that I believe that she was probably called to the door late at night, and being in West Cork and being trusting and feeling safe, she opened the door, and I think at that point, the person on the other side of that door wanted to basically make a play for her. I think that person thought that he, I don't think this is a female offender. I think that that person wanted to um, engage with her. And let's go back a little bit about what's going on, what the result is, and then we can go back and sort of reverse engineer what happened. Yeah, so just to throw in a timing, because we, we do know that she spoke to Daniel, her husband, at around 11 o'clock. So that's the last right. time that we know she's on the phone, she's had a conversation, and then what happens next? Right. And the other thing is that she does have a relationship with her neighbor, the, the person whose house is literally just yards past her. And in fact, I believe you might have to go right past or through her property to get to her neighbor's house. Yes, they share the same driveway down to the gate. So the neighbor the next day is going down in their car to the gate and it was unusual the gate was open. Normally the gate would be closed, but they did share that that driveway. And to your point that it sounds like she did go to bed and something or someone got her up. We know her clothes are in the bathroom, so she took them off, but she's wearing her night clothes when she answers the door, if she does answer the door. And I'm curious to hear more of your thoughts on that. But she does put her boots on. So she's got her pajamas on, but she's got her boots on when she's gone down and, and certainly when she's found the next morning. Right. So she may have done that, put her boots on because uh, she thought, uh, somebody might have been having trouble because it was so late when she got the knock at her door. I don't believe there's just no 
Um, there's nothing that tells me that she, that somebody, you know, forced their way into the house, that somebody, you know, kicked in a door or broke a window or anything like that. I mean, it just seems as though she opened the door. Um, I don't know if the person who killed her actually came into her house. I, I don't know. There's just no, there's just no evidence one way or the other. And the fact is that there was, uh, there was a little bit of blood found, I believe, on the outside of the back door. And that was too small a sample to test, unfortunately, at the time, which today it wouldn't be too small a sample, but it was probably used up in the test back in the day. Um, Are you talking about the the blood that's by the door handle that looks like it's a brushed down bit of blood? Are you talking about another? No, I think it was that. It was just that. That was it was on the back door, right? Yes. Yeah, so that that um, sample of blood, they did take a sample and it was tested and it came back as hers. Okay. Sophie's. But you're right. right in that there was no other disturbance. So there was uh, an out. There was a dustbin outside. You'd call it a trash bin that hadn't been disturbed. When they looked inside the cottage, it looked like nothing had been disturbed. Like no one had right. else had gone in there. The only question that was raised, and it was by someone that we're not going to talk about in detail, was about two wine glasses that were turned upside down on a draining board, and his inference on that was that she most likely had company which to me that doesn't imply that at all you can have a glass of wine one night clean the glass put it on the draining board grab another clean glass and not use the same one it doesn't necessarily point to there being company right and i sometimes drink ginger ale and wine glasses you know it doesn't mean that she was definitely drinking wine it certainly doesn't mean that there were two people there and there was no indication other than that that she bought food for two that she cooked for two or that her bed was being slept in by two people. So none of that actually is that, that's just it's complete and utter conjecture on somebody's part. And it's just it doesn't even rise to the theory to, to the level of a hypothesis. So there's absolutely no it, it's just it's just that we should disregard that. It's just some um, ridiculousness. However, if that blood that was on the door turns out to be hers then a couple of things could have happened one thing that i didn't learn from this documentary series i don't have the police file but i would really be interested in knowing whether or not that door was locked whether it had been uh you know whether it's the kind of thing where if it closes it actually relocks and she was locked out because that that could mean that she was initially assaulted there couldn't get back in the door, tried to get back in the door, and then had to run into the field away from the house to avoid the assault that was happening. It could also mean that the offender, after having killed her, came back to the house, whether that was because he wanted to clean up or he wanted to take some souvenir, I don't know. But that's something that uh, I think I would leave both of those possibilities open. But it's very clear that at some point she ran into the field in front of her house or on the side of her house. She was uh, injured by being struck, one, with a sharp-edged instrument, 
two with a blunt object, probably a piece of slate or or rock. And three, uh, while she was on the ground, apparently she was then bludgeoned with this heavy rock. Um, and there was a had, concrete breeze block, so okay. quite I'm not heavy. Sure what that means? So a it's breeze block. So it's what you you see it in um, the murder at the cottage documentary. You actually do see all the crime scene photos, which was really helpful. But yes, it's quite a large breeze block that you use for foundation. Some of them have the center cut out, but they're quite substantial and they are quite heavy. You would need two hands to pick it up. And it would seem that that was picked up. There was a, a stack of them a few feet away. And it seems that one was picked up and then at the base of the driveway yes. by the gate, there was a stack of them. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So these are all, all three of those are weapons of opportunity. This tells me it's not a planned hit. There's just no way that happened. So anybody who might have a grudge against her, who would quote, hire somebody or engage somebody else to, kill her no i don't believe that at all not in these circumstances and then when you when you look at the fact that basically the body disposition was was abandonment the body was just abandoned right there there was no attempt to cover it up there was no attempt to permanently conceal it or even temporarily conceal it and that, to me, also indicates that the murder itself was not planned. That it was not something that somebody intended to do. Had they planned that, it would have been so much more effective to do it inside her house. And they would have had many, many more hours or days of of delay before her body was discovered so it's interesting because generally people who who kill and there's a known connection between the victim and the offender many times they will they will dispose of the body in a way that is at least temporary concealment if not permanent concealment However, in this case, I believe that the, the body abandonment could be the result of somebody who is completely criminally unsophisticated, somebody who has never engaged in this kind of activity before and did not know what to do and probably freaked out more after the crime when it sunk in than he did before the crime. Or during the crime. To me, this crime scene and the body shows overkill. Overkill, yes. And Jim and I have a lot more to say about that. What are your thoughts and comments? What's your reaction? Drop me a message on social, on Instagram at Crime Analyst or Twitter at The Crime Analyst, or you can email me via my website, www.crime-analyst.com. And be sure to join us back in the Intelligence Cell next week. 
Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrude.